0: Many of us have had the feeling over the last few years that things were just not adding up, that the narratives in the mainstream media simply were not making sense. Well, my guest on the podcast today had that experience earlier than most, years back with online feminism, and it sowed the seed that became her most recent book.
1: Across any number of metrics, women were surpassing men and so i didn't really understand how this was all happening and then at the same time there was this vernacular kind of narrative on social media and in a lot of online journalism that really took as its premise that women were suffering, that women were a marginalized group, that it had never been a more sexist time, that even to walk down the street and fight the patriarchy at every corner meant that you were a badass, that needed to be congratulated. Like, it didn't make any sense to me.
0: Megan Daum is an essayist and the author of six books. She's a former opinion columnist with the Los Angeles Times and the host, of a weekly interview podcast, The Unspeakable. Her latest book is The Problem With Everything, my journey through the new culture wars. And it was recently released in paperback in Canada with a new introduction. Megan joins me today for a wide ranging conversation to talk about the excesses of Me Too, about cancel culture, about Elon Musk, and about the rise of heterodox thought. Megan Dow is my guest today on Lean Out. Megan, welcome to Lean Out. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So nice to have you on. I first read The Problem with Everything in the summer of 2020. I was working on a current affairs radio show, and it seemed like every topic that I was interested in was off-limits. So it was such a huge relief to read your book. It was a bit of a gateway drug to other heterodox thought for me. I know you have a new introduction to the book. With the bit of distance, with the last two years of like heated culture wars and a pandemic, more than two years, what is it like for you looking back on the book?
1: Oh, well, the book was so, first of all, thank you for reading that. And I'm really glad it resonated with you. The book was so excruciating to write. I mean, I've published six books and I have never had a challenge like this before. I mean, I basically started writing it in 2016 and it had many iterations along the way. But to answer your question, how do I feel about it two years out? I guess I feel like I thought things would have changed and I'm sort of unpleasantly surprised that they seem to have gotten worse. But, you know, I feel like the book it captures the moment that it landed and everything leading up to it. It's impossible to hit a moving target. I mean, there's a reason that when people are covering the current culture, they tend to do it best in columns, you know, in weekly installments or writing something every day. It's very, very hard to capture these kinds of cultural phenomena in a book. So it remains very much of it's time but it has certainly continued to be relevant and in fact more so i people are responding to it better now than they were when it but it first came out
0: mm, that's so interesting and i i think it as you say it is of its time but it really captures a lot of the forces that led up to this great awakening that we have been living through I do want to talk about Me Too. You do write about that quite extensively. Take me back to when the Aziz Ansari story came out and what you were thinking and feeling at that particular moment.
1: I think I was thinking and feeling what most women were. You know, it was really the record scratch moment. I think that might have been Barry Weiss's phrase. I can't remember who said that. Like, You know, people were you know, more or less going along with the Me Too movement obviously there was much good that came out of it, but like so many of these movements, the overcorrection comes with a lot of unintended consequences. So you have situations like Aziz Ansari where that was not a Me Too situation as Me Too had come to be defined. That was a misunderstanding. That was somebody who frankly was clearly making a bid for attention, which that's what people do these days you know to say somebody's looking for an opportunity to make themselves known that's not saying anything that's like saying somebody's breathing you know that's kind of the way people operate now but i think that a lot of people who had really been going along with me too in good faith took that opportunity took that situation as an occasion to really st- take a step back and say what are we doing here what are we critiquing What kind of behavior do we really mean to be calling out? And let's just kind of slow down a little bit. But I'm not sure we did slow down. Again,
0: alas. Yeah, it's funny. When you were writing about some of the ironic contempt for men, sort of leading up to that moment, the kill all men hashtag, the I drink male tears boasts on social media, that soon became inseparable from actual disdain for men. Like I worry sometimes listening to younger women talk about men now that I hear that disdain there. Do you think, I mean, it was so hard to talk publicly about these things back then as now, of course, but do you think there was enough internal criticism from people who identified as feminists as this was all bubbling up? Well, criticism is
1: anti-feminism. Self-criticism is the opposite of self-care. And self care is now synonymous with feminism, right? So, yeah, I mean, my book is a self interrogation, if nothing else. It's a memoiristic look at the culture. And so I'm self scrutinizing all the way through. And that's just what I do in life. And that's what I've always done in my work. I think that there it becomes very difficult to examine anything in any depth yourself, the world, other people no matter what it is, when you're dealing with everything being on screens, every kind of media experience being incredibly short. And this goes for all of us. If you're in these younger generations, that's just the air you've been breathing since you were born. It's almost impossible to have your brain kind of working at a slower metabolic rate. Mix metaphors, your sort of cognitive metabolism, right? But even those of us who are older, we still fall victim to this. So, you know, I certainly go around pointing out the differences between generations and how we're receiving information and thinking about things, but we are all like headed down this, I think, very dangerous path with respect to our abilities to look at ourselves with any degree of honesty and also kind of look at the world And get past our own confirmation biases and, you know, understand the difference between how things are and how we want them to be, because those two things are very much at odds often.
0: Mm -hmm. I was also struck by you went through some headlines. There's one that really stood out, the BBC headline in 2018, Climate Change Impacts Women More Than Men. And I, I, thought, <laughs> I yeah. remembered like this trend is, is very much present with us now. We're used to it. This sort of rolling emergency and everything is about this one thing. But I don't remember that happening before me too. And I, I mean, it's funny, but also I wonder if this contributed to the backlash that we're seeing. I remember Dave Chappelle warning about this in one of his specials. What do you think about that? The backlash that we're seeing?
1: Well, there's always been that kind of hyperbole in media. I mean, that was always a joke in news organizations. There would be a headline, you know, world ends, women and children affected the most, you know. So, there's always been that kind of tendency. But yeah, I just, you know, the reason that I was moved to write about this stuff was because I grew up in the 70s and the 80s and I was a young woman in the 90s and the, really the feeling, and it wasn't just a feeling, it was a fact, was that women were doing better than men on balance. Women were graduating from college and you know, getting higher degrees in greater numbers than men. They were buying their own homes, for instance, as single women, much, much more so than single men. Just across any number of metrics, women were surpassing men. And so I didn't really understand how this was all happening. And then at the same time, there was this vernacular kind of narrative on social media and in the digital media sphere, a lot of online journalism that really took as its premise that women were suffering, that women were a marginalized group, that it had never been a more sexist time, that even to walk down the street and fight the patriarchy at every corner meant that you were a badass that needed to be congratulated. Like, it didn't make any sense to me. So I wrote the book as a way of trying to figure out what I was missing. And it's funny because as I fully expected, some people love the book, but a lot of people, many of them, these younger generations of journalists, just were absolutely offended and just thought that I was like an old person kind of clutching my pearls and, and shaking my finger. And I think that part of that may have to do with Just sort of lack of familiarity with this kind of genre of writing and thinking. And I think that's just maybe par for the course with the way people take in content now.
0: You also write about toughness. I loved reading that. And it also made me think, I'm also Gen X, I'm about five years younger than you. And I started my career in hip hop and I experienced Mm -hmm. tons of sexism, but the way I thought about it was like, this toughened me up. Like I felt good about myself that I could kind of be tough in those ways. You write about that too, but that's not how the next generation sees it. Like, do you think there's a, is there a middle ground between us probably putting up with more than we needed to at times and them embracing their sort of vulnerability if you yeah.
1: put it that way? Yeah, well, I say that in the book. I think that our generation, we probably overvalue toughness. We, we sort of fetishize it. And millennials, Gen Zers, they perhaps overvalue or fetishize fairness. And we really need to meet in the middle someplace. You know, some, I remember there was a critique of the book that said, well, why is she taking all this time to praise toughness and talk about how important it is to be tough instead of working on a world to build a world where toughness is not necessary? I mean, that's absurd. This is like one of these, we call this the naturalistic fallacy, you know, just because something... Is true doesn't mean that we like it. Or just because we don't like something doesn't mean it it isn't true. You've talked about this a lot in your work with you know biological clocks and biological imperative and the differences between the sexes. And you know, in fact, there are things that women can't do that men can, and vice versa. There are probably more things that women can do that men can't at the end of the day, but it's never going to be fair. It might be equal at the end of the day, but fairness is a a very different thing.
0: Yeah. And I worry about some of the trade-offs as well. I, I, you know, I worry about the sort of hostility between the sexes, the sex recession, the real trouble young people are having dating and connecting. It just, it seems like we've lost some pretty big things along the way. And yet talking about that is still difficult.
1: Yeah. It's funny though. Like, is it difficult because we're not allowed to talk about the biological sex and all this and all that but i feel like there's a world in which it's difficult or where we've decided that it's difficult and that's the twitter sphere and mm. these kind of you know very very small echo chambers of discourse academics and activists and you know writers for buzzfeed or whatever it is you know but that's a very very tiny percentage of the world and the culture you know in the real world People can talk about this stuff all the time and and they actually do. And so I'm at a place now where I just think as a journalist or as a public thinker, you know, it's really your job to just get past what your colleagues or your peers expect from you or some kind of arbitrary standard that they've set for acceptable conversation. And just talk like a normal person, because <laughs> I guarantee you, you know, if you go out to a, a restaurant on a Friday night and there's a group of young women sitting around at a table drinking wine and talking about their lives, they are going to be talking about the differences between men and women. They are going to be talking about their frustrations insofar as they relate to real biological realities, you know, unless you happen to be in some particular, the social justice warrior tavern uh, someplace, but (laughs) on on balance, (laughs) normal people are still talking about normal stuff. Yeah. And I think that we as media people need to Just be mindful of that.
0: Mm -hmm. Is there any topic now, I was thinking about this today with your podcast. Is there any topic now that you would still get that? I mean, I'm still coming out of mainstream media. I still get that like (gasps) sometimes with, with topics, which I override, but do you get that anymore? Are there any topics that you would feel really nervous now still to talk about?
1: No, the thing is like, I think people are used to me. I mean, I come from mainstream media too, but I've been an opinion writer for 20 years and it's funny, I was an LA Times opinion columnist from like 2005 to 2016 basically. Mm. And the stuff I was writing in the mid 2000s, it's really no different than anything I would write or talk about now. It wasn't considered controversial. It was considered surprising or a little bit a little bit provocative, but it was certainly within the normal realm of thought experiment or, you know, saying to your reader, Hey, what if we look at this this way? So, you know, it's only in the last, maybe (laughs) since 2015 or so, I mean, I'd be curious, like what year you, you identify as being the start of this, but it's really only in the last six or seven years that pretty normal lines of inquiry have been cordoned off as somehow harmful. Mm -hmm. And so in my own work, I think I was so accustomed to writing stuff that not necessarily everybody agreed with that it doesn't really hurt me any anymore. I mean, I'm I'm totally on my own. I can't get fired because I I am my own <laughs> boss. But, you know, another thing with podcasts is that it's your own audience. Like, mm. you know, nobody's going to bother to listen to a whole podcast if they hate you. It's not the same as having working for a mainstream news organization or having a column in a major newspaper where your ideas are being shoved into the faces of all kinds of people, most of whom would never read you unless they, you know, if they didn't happen to open up the newspaper and see you there that day. So you're getting a little bit of a skewed sense. So, you know, it's funny because we, the media sphere, it feels more negative than is perhaps the reality, but those of us who have created our own little silos, I think, we can easily get the impression that everybody loves us just because our, <laughs> our particular audience loves us and the other people don't bother with us anymore. I think you know, yeah. I don't get a lot of complaints because they don't really bother with it.
0: I want to talk as well about, you know, you brought up just the time frame of your work as an opinion columnist, but you were sort of at the end of 2015, you were talking in the book about this discovery of free speech YouTube, which I just loved reading about that. I remember you talking about this when you had John McWhorter on your podcast, which was just such a strong interview and going through losing the marriage and that intellectual debate and finding this new group of intellectuals. For our listeners, walk me through a little bit of what that transition was like for you.
1: (laughs) Well, yeah, I wrote about this in this piece called "Nuance: A Love Story," which appeared on Medium actually, and Mm. it was this big, very long, very viral in the end piece. So, yeah, I was married. I got married relatively late in life. We were like in our late thirties, and you know, the marriage had its had problems, but we were very much intellectually aligned we were always on the same page when we talked about ideas in the world. So when I lost the marriage, you know, I lost my intellectual ally. And at the same time, again, this was around 2015, a lot of my friends and colleagues were kind of drifting over into this other space, the one we were talking about earlier, the ironic misandry and rolling their eyes at men and just you know making very glib, you know, taking cheap shots at men in the patriarchy, just like people that I thought were relatively sophisticated were suddenly acting very, very adolescent and juvenile in their in their thinking. And I think it was a way of signaling to each other that they were on the right side and also gaining audience by doing that. So that was a very alienating experience. And I started to feel kind of lonely. And I stumbled on John McWhorter and Glenn Lowry having conversations on something called bloggingheads.tv, which had been around for a long time. Bloggingheads was started in, I think, 2005 or something by Robert Wright. So, I started watching them, and they would call themselves the Black guys on Blogging Heads, and they would talk about a lot of issues, among them race. And they talked about race in this extraordinarily nuanced, honest, unapologetic way. And it was exhilarating. And then, of course, the YouTube algorithm led me down the path, and I started discovering other kinds of thinkers and people like Sam Harris or any number. I mean, I want to say Dave Rubin before he completely jumped the shark. I mean, let's remember this was like seven years ago. And yeah, I I realized that there was this world of people having really, really great conversations on YouTube. And these conversations were just not available in mainstream media anymore. Certainly not on NPR, not on any kind of like interview show. It was remarkable. And so that was the beginning of my I didn't really step away from the mainstream media, but I was <laughs> I, I was sort of pushed out. But coincidentally, the you know, the structures were falling apart anyway. So good riddance.
0: <laughs> it was so interesting when I was reading about that. I was thinking how many people probably would relate to that and will relate to that going through that experience in the pandemic, that extreme isolation on the one hand, and then the conformity of thought just pushing down on you. And I remember reading an essay from William Derechewitz saying that your podcast did that for him. Oh, that's so I nice think, to hear. Yeah. He I did? Think, yeah. He said in an essay that he was listening to your podcast and it was give, filling that void that he was not getting in other places like NPR. What do you think that experience is that we all went through when we're in such isolation and we're in this cultural crisis and there's this lifeline of these big conversations you can't have elsewhere?
1: I think it's just feeling like you're not crazy because you know you watch the news You watch CNN or listen to NPR, read the New York Times, and you're being fed this narrative that isn't completely wrong, by the way, by any means. It's mostly right. The reporting is excellent. This is not like we're being fed conspiracy theories, but it's always just something off. The framing is such that you start to smell something kind of bogus, and then it just makes you feel very alone when you see your friends and your family members and your colleagues just buying into it without thinking often. And so I think those of us who were kind of sensitive to that bullshit, let's just call it what it is ended up finding each other. And I always, you know, I want to be clear about this, is this is not like we all have the same views. I mean, this word heterodox has arisen now. It's not a great (laughs) word, but we can't seem to find a better one. And, you know, people say, well, what does that mean? And to me, it just means that you form your opinions on an issue-by-issue basis rather than lining them up according to one side. Now, I think, you know, some people think heterodox means like, Alt right adjacent or something like that, which could not be farther from the truth. And so you get people with actually all kinds of views under this heterodox umbrella. And I like to just think of it as people who
0: are allergic to bullshit. It's that simple. It's a good way of putting it. And I'm glad you brought up that alt right thing because really the sort of knee jerk reaction to anyone, particularly on the left, criticizing the left is now to call us right wing. I want to read a passage from the book. I would have taken equal, if not more, delight in criticizing the political right if there was anything remotely interesting or surprising about doing so. But bashing the right, especially in the age of Trumpism, was easy and boring. Inspecting your own house for hypocrisy was a far meatier assignment. You had this conversation with John Kay recently. What is a conservative? Why do you think all dissenters from the left now are being painted with this brush? What is this about?
1: Well, during the Trump administration, the idea was that we couldn't afford to inspect our own house. Like we can't afford nuance because a nuanced discussion can easily be weaponized by the other side. That's what they like to say. The thing is, you can really only be canceled by your own side. If you're on the left and you get criticized by the right, that's actually good. That helps you, that gives you currency but to be cast out by your own side becomes a real problem. And so, yeah, I don't know. I I think that there was such a feeling of catastrophe and during the Trump era, although this actually started well before the rise of Trump. I mean, I was noticing this in 2014, People started saying, I'm going to call you out. The call-out culture, I mean, I was seeing that in like 2013 on Twitter. I was noticing that. But certainly by the time we got to Trump, there was a feeling among Democrats that we were in an unprecedented crisis and that anybody who was not going to join the resistance in exactly this way was helping the other side, might as well be helping Trump that we could not afford any kind of complexity in any of our discussions. And I think that remains, I think that sense of catastrophe, and now we see it around COVID. I mean, the feeling of anxiety, you know, I was just talking about this with some people and somebody very smartly said, you know, anxiety has become a religion. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) And I can't take credit for that idea, but it was, you know, anxiety has become a religion. And if you are not sufficiently anxious, you are a heretic essentially. You know, Mm -hmm. the people who are the most anxious about COVID in general are the people who are not religious otherwise. And we see it with race. I mean, John McWhorter has said that anti-racism is a sort of religion. Social justice ideology in its extreme has real religious characteristics, minus the forgiveness part, of course. So, yeah, I just think that to answer your question, yeah, the people on the left, especially, They don't like self-scrutiny because they think it's going to hurt the cause. And they think the cause is really, 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 really dire. Mm. And that may be true, but it also may be more complex than really, really, really
0: dire. I wanted to ask you briefly about Elon Musk because I know that you profiled him for (laughs) Vogue. Yes. The most hard-hitting Elon profile to date. Yes. (laughs) And I know you had Megan Murphy on recently on the podcast because she's been banned for life from Twitter. What's your sense? Do you think he's a sincere defender of free speech?
1: Yeah. I mean, he certainly likes to exercise it. I'm not sure how much time he actually spends thinking deeply about free speech and all its ramifications and free speech absolutism versus other forms of it. I mean, everything exists on a spectrum, right? Free Mm. speech exists on a spectrum. I would hope that he's spending more time building things than worrying about what people can say on Twitter. I think that he, you know, it was a long time ago that I did that piece. I think it was in like 2014. So, you know, he's a very focused person. It's interesting that he likes Twitter so much because he's sort of awkward interpersonally. I mean, I think he would say this. I'm sure he's on the autism spectrum, which which, as he should be, you know, all those guys are. So I sometimes think that there's a big correlation between people who use Twitter a lot and people who have a hard time negotiating in-person social situations. And I think that's a big reason you see a lot of people going after each other on Twitter who are in these highly specific ideological groups because those people tend to be on the spectrum. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I think he's a Twitter enthusiast. And if that means being able to say, whatever you want, then yeah. And I think he would reinstate Megan Murphy when and if he has that ability.
0: I also wanted to ask you it just reminded me of one thing you asked John Kay as well about what he told younger writers. And I know in your intro to the book you returned to that question. Your old answer was like be brave. Your new answer is I don't I don't know. What's your answer today?
1: I really don't know. <laughs> I mean the thing is I don't know is the only honest answer to anything. You know, as I've said before, you know, a lot of these podcasts and these nuanced conversations we're all trying to have, the ones that really get big, big audiences and get the most attention are the ones where the guest or the host is willing to say, Well, I do know, here's the answer. This is what's happening, full stop. And that's never true. The only truly honest answer to anything is, We we just don't know. I mean, unless we're talking about it, does two plus two equals four? Which that's not a very interesting podcast conversation. (laughs) So you know, the I don't know show is probably not going to get a lot of YouTube hits. But yeah, I mean, in terms of what to tell writers, it's really hard. I mean, I'm teaching a online personal essay and memoir workshop right now, and in fact, I just before we started this call, I went on Facebook, which I rarely do. I don't really use Facebook, but I said to everybody like. Can you guys name some publications where my students might be able to submit their work? Because I honestly can't think of any place anymore. So I'll be curious to see what people say.
0: Hmm. Wow. Well, one very quick thing and we will close. I just wanted to read a passage from your book that really stood out to me. We need to stop devouring our own and canceling ourselves. We need fewer sensitivity readers and more empathy as a matter of course. We need to recognize that to deny people their complications and contradictions is to deny them their humanity. I loved that. Where are we? Are we any closer to that point that you're advocating for right now?
1: (laughs) No, I don't think we are. I think that there is a growing movement of people pushing against it. But the reason that the movement is growing is because the problem has grown. You know, there are so many people out there that think that treating people of color as if they are some kind of disabled group or as if they don't have any sort of agency or lack of ability the way anybody else would. There's a lot of people who really think that that is equity and that is anti racism. And it's the opposite of it it's infantilization. And it's just, it's stunning the way so many people, institutional leaders, corporate leaders, people in HR departments, people in the Biden administration. I mean, the fact that I didn't actually see this, but that Jen Psaki introduced the new press secretary as a Black lesbian, and like that was it that's just abhorrent i mean that's just completely insulting and unacceptable but this is this is the highest office in the land i mean this is what's supposedly setting the tone mm. so until we get to a place where the adults can actually act like adults we're going to be stuck here you know i often say that if the smart thoughtful people don't speak out, the stupid, thoughtless people are going to continue to do the job. But often the smart people are smart enough to know when to keep their mouths shut. (laughs) And that's why you don't see it. That's why when somebody Mm. in a university department gets canceled, they're going to get messages of support, soto voce. They're not going to get people standing up for them publicly because people say, well, I know what's going to happen to me if I do that. So we really just need to see institutional leaders People who can afford to take some hits, actually standing up and taking them. Because I think when people start to do that, others will follow, but it just isn't happening yet. And I don't know what it will take to have that start, but maybe we can talk again in a year and and this will be a more uplifting conversation.
0: (laughs) Well, in the meantime, thank you for being one of the smart, thoughtful people who is speaking publicly. Thank you so much for coming on today. And uh, great to talk to you.
1: Likewise, thank you.
0: Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com.